Hello and welcome to the Urban Health Podcast, keeping busy city executives and entrepreneurs empowered and healthy. I'm Stephanie Webster. I'm a nutritional therapist on Harley Street, London, specialising in gut health, hormone optimization therapy for the over 40s. So today we have the very wonderful Mr. Alistair Windsor on the show. It's his second time. This is part of the Gut Instincts series, speaking about Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis specifically. Mr. Alistair Windsor is a specialist colorectal surgeon in London, head of the abdominal wall unit at UCLH and a founder member of the Surgical European Crohn's and Colitis Organisation. A committed surgical trainer and educator, he has over 150 publications and book chapters. He runs a significant tertiary referral practice in intestinal failure, which focuses on the management of abdominal catastrophe, including the management of erectocutaneous fistula. Is that correct? Did I say that right? Entero. 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 Gut. Gut fistulas. Do you know, every day is a a learning day. (laughs) And uh, he's also interested in complex inflammatory bowel disease, as well as the treatment of abdominal wall hernias. Wildly regarded as a leader in the field of colorectal disease, Alistair also maintains a busy clinical practice in the broader aspects of colorectal surgery, including minimal access surgery, endoscopy, colonoscopy, colorectal cancer, Crohn's and colitis, diverticular disease, prolapse and incontinence, as well as IBS and proctology. Well, you're a bit busy, aren't you? I was going to say, sounds sounds amazing. (laughs) Yes, it does sound amazing, and you are amazing. And having met you in person, I can testify how even more amazing you are, both on a personal level, as briefly as our encounter was, and on a professional level. It's nice to see how much you invest in your own health as well as others. Thank you. So, today we're going to discuss the difference between Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. For those who are joining us for the first time, I have ulcerative colitis, which I manage without uh, any formal medication. And uh, my brother actually has Crohn's disease, which he takes medication for. And a lot of the, the people who uh, come to see me have, have digestive issues. So tell us the similarities and the differences between the two. Um, well, they're both um, inflammatory conditions of the bowel. In other words, it's something that the immune system is damaging the lining of the bowel. Um, and that's the sort of basis or background of the disease. Um, uh, ulcerative colitis, as the name suggests, just affects the colon. Um, so you get an ulceration or an inflammation in the colon, which is the last bit of the bowel, the last meter of the bowel. Whereas Crohn's disease is a little bit more extensive and can affect anywhere from mouth to anus. So you can get mouth ulcers, you can get damage in the small bowel, and you can get um, damage in the colon and down in the anal canal, fistulas and things in the anal canal. Um, they're both fundamentally, as I say, they're, they're inflammatory conditions and therefore they give rise to pretty devastating symptoms. They're often young people um, who develop these uh, conditions um, and diarrhea, weight loss, abdominal pain and a number of other things we might go on to discuss. But they're pretty devastating conditions. So similar, um, but distribution of the disease, I guess, is the key. Crohn's much more extensive um, ulcerative colitis just confined to the colon, which it has some advantages and some disadvantages. But um, So that's roughly what they are. And if we took a cross-section of, of uh, a sample of affected colon, so let's say we, we took a cross-section of ulcerative colitis under the microscope, as it were, and a cross-section of Crohn's disease. So with ul- ulcerative colitis, there's ulcers, and then Crohn's disease has, has what that looks different? So, so yeah, no, interesting, and the 
big differences in in terms of, of the microscopy looking at the uh, at what's going on at that cellular level so ulcerative colitis is just confined to the lining of the bowel so it's just literally on the inside of the bowel whereas Crohn's disease is what we describe as transmural inflammation goes right the way across the wall and the difference there is that when you heal those ulcers again in Crohn's disease so you get similar ulceration you can get strictures you can get narrowing so Crohn's disease is a condition where you can actually obstruct you can cause blockages as well as the inflammatory process and also in Crohn's disease because it goes across the wall or through the wall you can actually get connections to other bits of bowel what we call fistulas so it can be a much more aggressive and a much more difficult disease sometimes to manage Crohn's and ulcerative colitis although ulcerative colitis still can cause some narrowings it can cause some problems later in life um, but so there are difference again at the cellular level as, as well as the distribution of the disease. So um, before we go on to the causes of these diseases, let's talk a little bit about the symptoms because sometimes clients will come and see us and they think they might have Crohn's, they think they might have ulcerative colitis or they might say IBS and, and it's actually something more serious. So the, from a symptoms point of view, what, what are the symptoms of, of both? Yeah, it's a difficult one there, cause, and, and it is one of the problems with the inflammatory bowel disease. It's a relatively rare condition, so at a general practice level, you wouldn't see lots of people with inflammatory bowel disease, and therefore there's often delay in diagnosis, and, and you know, said to be delay of many months sometimes in diagnosis. Yes, that's true. They can, mm. yeah, yeah, you've probably had the similar experience. They mm. can mimic all sorts of very benign conditions, and it's how you pick out as you've just mentioned, the, the irritable bowel syndrome, the sort of common bowel-related symptoms that we often all get, um, and, you know, how, and a bit of rectal bleeding, a bit of weight loss sometimes, a bit of diarrhea. How do we differentiate between that and inflammatory bowel disease? I think nowadays there is a, um, a marker, a thing called fecal calprotectin, which is a marker of inflammation in the gut, which is very specific. And so we, it, it's, it's made life a little bit easier at a general practice level to send off this stool sample. And you can then say whether or not there's inflammation or no inflammation. Clearly, if you've got no inflammation, it's likely to be an irritability. Um, if you've got inflammation, then you need appropriate investigation and referral. So I think probably it made, it's made life a little bit easier simply with that. But the, but the, the their symptoms can be a very broad spectrum. Change in bowel habit, diarrhea, loose stool is often the principal problem, often a bloody stool if you've got ulcerative colitis. Um, but then the systemic symptoms of feeling unwell, of losing weight, of having no appetite, um, all rather non-specific. So sometimes very difficult and sometimes delays to diagnosis. Sometimes you can get uh, unusual symptoms to a common problem, but sometimes you can get unusual symptoms to an uncommon problem, and that's the problem with diagnosis. So a proper investigation is is definitely necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, it's relative, once you get to somebody that understands the disease, it's relatively easy to make a diagnosis. It's actually making that first step, making you know, getting the, get the, the referral on to somebody who has an interest and somebody who can do the appropriate tests and find out what's going on. Absolutely. And it's, I call that the power of being understood. And once you're in, yep. in, in your office, then they're in the right place to, to get the right treatment. So let's talk about causes. Do we know what the cause of this disease is? these diseases? Very simple, no. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? We've known it about is. these conditions for mm. many, many, many years. Um, and we really understand the immunology, so what's going on with the immune system and why it causes the damage. We understand a huge amount of the genetics 
of these conditions and, and clearly genes is involved and you can tell from your family so you've got a brother and yourself with with, with one of, of the two conditions yeah. so we understand a huge amount about it but what actually triggers what is it that causes it like you know the virus that causes measles we, we just don't have that yet um, the possibility I guess is that it's lots of different things for different people and the diseases just manifest themselves as we see Crohn's and ulcerative colitis and it may be a trigger for you would be a different for a trigger for somebody else but clearly there's some genetics involved and we know that, um, that just very simply a bit of genetics from concordance in twins so in other words if you have identical twins who's clearly got exactly the same genetic makeup what is the likelihood if one twin has Crohn's or ulcerative colitis that the other has Crohn's or ulcerative colitis and it's about 50% and 20% so 50% concordance with Crohn's disease and 20% concordance with uh, with ulcerative colitis so clearly there's a genetic element we know that there are families like your family where you can inherit both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis so it isn't necessarily just one it's one and the other so there's clearly an important genetic um, factor involved, but something else. So there's some other environmental trigger, and we, we you know, always thought this was probably foodstuffs, possibly things that you eat, which may, I guess, be, um, be true. But there's an element of the microbiome, and we've spoken about this before, what's going on, the garden in your gut, all of those bacteria in there and and something about the way the immune system um, responds to particular microbes in the in the gut is probably the source um, of what's going on um, but we just really don't have at the moment we don't have um, you know a fine detail on that I think just an illustration one hugely um, um, a big problematic um, issue with Crohn's disease in the world is in in the Middle East and the Middle East didn't see Crohn's disease years ago you just never saw it um, but very recently there's been a, an ex literally an explosion in bad Crohn's disease, particularly in places like Kuwait. Um, and one can only assume that they've had this genetic background that's been there all along, but they didn't have the environmental triggers. So with changes in their diet, with changes in travel, changes in their, presumably their, their, their you know, microbiome, the gut, the gut bacteria, they've now been able to trigger that genetic problem and therefore they've got a problem with Crohn's. So it's a mixture in there. We just don't have a handle on what the trigger is. It's so true. I just see this as an inflammatory condition and anything that causes inflammation in the gut, be that stress, be that foodstuffs, um, air pollutants, anything that causes inflammation is setting the scene for a flare-up to happen. So managing inflammation is, is, is key to so many conditions, actually, not just these two. But there's a, inflammation is the cause of quite, quite a lot of diseases anyway. So it's interesting to see how the, the Kuwaitis have been affected with that. So, and I mean, I just, I just, I would agree to that. It's the mm -hmm. inflammation that's the key as well. We might come on to this in a second, but yes. but but our understanding of how and and we used to kind of just get, you know dampen down the inflammation was enough, but we really got to get rid of the inflammation. It's the inflammation that causes all the downstream problems of these diseases. So, however you want to manage that inflammation, and I don't think it matters how you manage it, if you can get it under control, then you don't have the downstream problems. And I think absolutely, it's the inflammation that's the key. Yeah, so let's talk about inflammation and a flare-up and the use of steroids and then the use of, when you don't have a flare-up, I guess the lifestyle changes that I've adopted to, to try, I'm lucky, I guess, not everyone um, has a body that can respond so well to a dietary change or to a management of stress, which I haven't as yet mastered. But w when there is a flare-up, um, the protocol would be uh, prednisolone. I, I, and, well, I'll let you talk about what, what, a, what the treatment would be. Yeah, I think 
so the flares are interesting. So, so, and that's what, what um, the, you know, these flares of inflammation are what causes the problem. So, for instance, in Crohn's disease, um, if you have a flare, once you've had a flare, you have healing. If you have healing, you have scarring. If you have scarring, you then start getting strictures and all of the problems you get with Crohn's disease. So what we're trying to do in, in managing these conditions is to wipe out the inflammation or treat to mucosal healing. In other words, just have no evidence of inflammation if you can. And the old way of doing that was just waiting until people had flares. And as you describe, hitting them hard with steroids, which will wipe out the inflammatory process. It doesn't change the actual natural history of the disease, but it made people feel better. But of course, the problem with, with using steroids is that there's all sorts of problems with the steroids. And in, in effect, the steroids are often worse than the, the disease itself. So I think the, the one thing that we're very good at now is, is trying to, if you are on medication, and we might talk a bit more about medication, but trying to keep a background level of medication to keep the disease under control. And if you're lucky, as you say, that you're somebody like yourself, when there are other strategies, dietary strategies, where you can keep your disease under control, that's absolutely fine. But the key is constantly checking, just checking for the inflammation. And what we're now doing from a medical perspective is being much more proactive in managing that inflammation and making sure that you don't allow people to get flares. So, you know, what triggers flares? Well, well any sort of life event in a way. So, so, you know, intercurrent infections, so if you get flu and all that sort of stuff, you can trigger a flare, but also stress. And we know for a fact stress doesn't necessarily cause these diseases, but stress, you know, work, life, whatever, stresses can certainly start to trigger and to, you know, and, and to push those flares and make the flares worse. So, as you say, anything that you can do to reduce those stress levels, anything you can do to damp down with your diet, the inflammatory process, and, and, and allowing your medical team, as it were, to keep an eye on that inflammation, that's the key to trying to stop these diseases from causing trouble. Very similar to, to arthritis. If you never had a flare of your arthritis, you never get the joint damage, Therefore, you don't have a problem with the arthritis. And that's re relatively recent in the last sort of five, six, ten, perhaps ten years that we've been much more aggressive in managing the inflammation. Well, it is interesting that a lot of uh, individuals with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease get seen also by a rheumatologist, which mm -hmm. deals with uh, anti-inflammatory protocols also. So that's, I've always found that interesting. Well, they, of course, the, the, these diseases don't just affect the gut, um, and you can have diseases of the eyes, of the joints, of the skin, um, and that, so multiple manifestations of the inflammatory process that come out elsewhere, and they're just a sign of the background inflammation again. So once you get the inflammation under control, most often these, these eye signs, the joint signs, the skin signs will settle as well. Um, and of course, then there's the side effects of the drugs that, that you need to keep an eye on as well. So it, it is a balancing act to get that inflammation down and keep it under control. What I like about the protocols that you suggest to your clients is using the minimum effective dose of Western medication to get the body under control and also Im implementing healthy strategies that are long term that have no side effects, no down, down uh, effects whatsoever. So reducing stress, improving one's diet. I mean, a lot of my clients have told me that they got their symptoms after a divorce, after a death in the family, after a traumatic event, after losing their job. This is all stress. Now, have we done a double-blind study across 10,000? No, we haven't. But if the individual believes that that is the cause, we need to listen to that because that is their truth and their story. And if the symptoms happened after that event, I mean, may, they, they might have a point, right? And... If they notice, oh, it's very definitely. 
yeah. yeah. When we see it regularly, particularly in ulcerative colitis, you often see that the very first trigger is something, it's a big life event, and then that triggers the disease. The disease clearly is in the background, but it just hasn't been triggered at that point. Why that is so, and again, we know about stress and, and the microbiome and, and the interactions, the gut-brain axis and all of that. There's something going on there. We're just not clever enough, I guess, at the moment to work out precisely what it is. Yeah, and there's more research happening in that. And we spoke more about the gut-brain axis in your other podcast. So mm. if anyone is, is, is interested in that, please look that up and find. And then when it comes to diet, you know, I found cutting out dairy to be wonderful for me and, and gluten also and fizzy drinks. But other uh, clients have reported the skin on a red on a on on peppers for some reason causes them pro- tr- trouble or the seeds in tomatoes which i know is common in, in uh, a common irritant in diverticulitis but it, it seems to also affect those with crohn's and and uh, ulcerative colitis often i haven't noticed it myself again we're all individual and it's about finding the appropriate long-term strategies that are going to support your body and the in- integrity of the body going forward and and I like, Western medication is there and it is effective and should be used in the absence of other alternatives being effective. You know, if it's an emergency situation, of course, um, but they do damage the integrity of the beautiful machine that is our body. So it's, it's and, uh, not always a long term yeah, view. Just to pick up on, on, on the diet. So, so you know, uh, different types of diets. So, so looking at elemental diets and for those that have not heard about that. So, so that's a sort of pre-digested diet. So the, the actual, um, you know, you're not eating whole foods, you're eating the elements of the diet and, and it's not terribly palatable, but um, things like modulin. And we know that in young children with Crohn's disease, those elemental diets given up front as a primary treatment are as effective as steroids in managing the disease. That's amazing. Um, in actually getting it under control, bringing it into remission. And we actually use um, entirely enteral feeding before operations. We know that, that patients have difficulty eating a normal diet, often for Crohn's, because they've, um, they've got strictures. And we know those strictures are going to need an operation. But we'll give them a period of time on a, a modulin or an elemental diet um, to try and bring the inflammation under control, make the operations easier. Get, get them in a position where they're nutritionally well before their operation. So it's very powerful, the diet. And just as you describe, and then, then once you've got them under control, there's nothing wrong with exploring your diet and looking at what's triggering you, what makes you feel worse. And it will be different, and you beautifully described it there, it's different in different people. So doing your own elimination diet seems to be a very sensible and reasonable thing to do. If you need to have our medication, the you know Western medication, uh, the anti-inflammatory medication, then take it. It, it, it you know, it is sometimes yeah. necessary, um, and and sometimes necessary to to ultimately change the the natural history of the disease. So to change it. But if you're under control with your diet, then I agree with you. I think that, and even if you're taking that medication, there's nothing wrong with supplementing that with good control, good dietary control as well. Yes, absolutely. So very important. And I sort of see the body as a fortress. And if we build up the defences well and have anti-inflammatory habits, shall I say, then you don't let the inflammation in. And if you don't let it in, then it's unlikely to take hold and escalate to the point where Western medicine is is the only choice left in order to get it under control. And um, I am not anti-Western medication. I'm not pro-complementary. I'm, I'm pro what works for the, for the for what for the problem that we see at the moment what's effective and what doesn't damage you long term um so so yeah and and on the um elimination diet also 
You know, I also found it's a little bit like a fish in a goldfish bowl. If you imagine the water and the fish and you add a drop of poison, if you like, the fish might even live. You know, so if you think of that water as like our blood supply, if you have a bit of dairy, assuming you're not allergic, of course, if you have a bit of dairy or a bit of gluten, now and again, rarely, you'll be fine. But if you're constantly piling in the dairy, the cigarettes, the alcohol, the caffeine, the, the carbonated drink, you're so polluted that that water tank starts to become cloudy and the fish gets sick and eventually dies. Or certainly the quality of life is impeded. So I, it, it is a percentage of polluted. The body can handle a certain amount. And if it doesn't, it just shows how already inflamed you are, how already sensitive you are. I really enjoyed, actually, in a, in a, in a sick sort of way, um, seeing just when I got really well and my, my inflammation was... I felt zero, um, just how much I can get away with without causing a flare. But in a, and it's about finding that gauge in your own body and, and biohacking yourself and experimenting and just learning. Wow, I'm really sensitive today or, you know, wow, I can really get away. And, and, and not, it's not about taking advantage of getting away with it, but just learning the habits that keep yeah. you well and the habits that derail you. Anyway, so... And, and also, just yeah, yeah um, absolutely. And uh, but just do not do not fear the medication. Um, you know, if you need it, the yeah. key is getting to a team that understands what you need and how to safely administer it. Um, and and you know, we see lots of patients still being given lots and lots of steroids. We really, really don't use steroids. We just the if, if you're managing the disease appropriately, it's very rare that you need to give steroids nowadays. So people are on repeated doses of steroids you just that's got to be wrong and therefore you need to get to a team that understands how to manage that and then can manage with you with the diet we've got our own dietitians here who can give you all of that elimination advice as well we, we work alongside that so I agree with you you know do what you can yourself and then ask for the appropriate help and if you need that treatment take the treatment. Alistair tell us about your team and how many patients you see and you have an NHS practice as well as a private practice Just tell us about the good work that you do. Well, I've just given up my NHS practice. Okay. After 30 years, I've just wow, I've hung up my years. scalpel. Um, so not, not entirely. I have an honorary contract, and so I'll still be involved very much in the teaching and training, and, and that's been part of my sort of love for years is, is, the, is the teaching and the training and making sure that we get patients who've got a problem to the right people and, and the right understanding, so you know, teaching people how to do that. Um, so we run a, I, I'm basically the, the practice is run out of um, LDS, London Digestive Surgery, London Digestive Centre down in Welbeck Street, and we have a very, very unique um, inflammatory bowel disease team here, I think, in the private sector. To certainly, we have a multidisciplinary team which has all of the necessary um, expertise with physicians, radiologists, pathologists, surgeons, and all of the nursing staff, the clinical nurse specialists, stoma care. And we run a multidisciplinary team meeting where we discuss complicated cases. Um, once a month, we sit down with the physicians and the radiologists and everybody else to discuss these very issues about what should we be doing for this particular individual. Um, and so I think they get, you know, you get as good care um, coming through the private sector here as you would do in a big NHS practice because you have that team approach to it. And, and I think inflammatory bowel disease is very much a team approach. You should, you know, surgeons alone should not be managing. Physicians alone should not be managing. We need that whole team to give that holistic approach to managing. It's a complex disease and you need all the right ingredients for the team to make sure that you get the very best treatment for these patients. And, and as you yourself know, it can be a devastating disease 
in young people. And therefore, we need to get them as well as we can. Avoid surgery. I'm a great believer in avoiding surgery. I don't want to operate on people unless we really have to. It's almost like, you know, we've, we've failed them if we allow them to get that, that to that stage. But sometimes surgery is a very positive thing. Um, it's a very positive treatment. And therefore, if they need an operation, they need an operation, again, by somebody who's experienced and somebody who uh, works within a team. And I think that's the key, working within a team. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. One final point before we wrap up, we're going to talk about colon cancer. These two conditions can lend themselves to a higher rate, a higher percentage risk of colon cancer, but colon cancer can also affect one in three people, I'm told. So let's, that's not just for those with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. What markers do we need to look out for to uh, make sure well, the, the, and, and I think it's, it's a very um, important point. So taking colon cancer as a whole, and I think we probably mentioned this last time, but it's beginning to occur in younger people. And so we're beginning to see a significant shift in the, in the age group. It's still most common in the elderly, but in, but in patients from or people from the age of sort of 35, 45, 50, we very rarely saw colon cancer. And it's a huge, in the Western world, as it were, Northern Europe, North America, there's a big increase in, in those numbers. So again, there's something environmental going on there. We're not doing the right thing to our bodies if that's happening. The genes aren't changing. They don't change that quickly. So it must be an environmental issue. Regards the, the, the colitis and, and the Crohn's, any inflammatory condition will increase your risk of colon cancer. So both of those conditions, Crohn's colitis and ulcerative colitis, will significantly increase your risk of colon cancer. If you have inflammation, and it's the same story, if you can keep that inflammation down and stop the inflammation from happening, keeping it under control, that risk reverts to the normal population. And so if you're with a good team, if you're managing all the things that you need to manage that we've discussed and you've got that inflammation under control, your risk will be negligible. However, you still need to be in a team that will keep an eye on your colon on a regular basis. So normally after 10 years of disease, we would argue that you need some sort of surveillance of your colon to make sure you don't get caught out by those changes um, with, with the colitis and with the Crohn's colitis. Oh, I'm due then. I should come and see you just to make sure. <laughs> have a colonoscopy. Yeah. Enjoy. Uh, but it is important. It's one of those things later in life. We just need to keep an eye. Yeah. Okay. So for all of you listening, alwindsor.co.uk. That's A-L-W-I-N-D-S-O-R.co.uk. Very informative website. It's good to educate yourself. Please make an appointment with Mr. Alistair Windsor if you have any concerns for you or for other family members who are suffering of these symptoms. Get checked out early and be preventative. And thank you so much for coming on to the show. Definitely pleasure again. Great pleasure. I've always found you ethical, diligent, and I love your holistic approach. And you're just very proactive. And I, I, I just love the work that you do. So thank you again. Thank you very much. Take and thank care. you for all listening to the Urban Health Podcast, keeping busy people healthy.